moment. Let's do a quick sound check. Do we still echoey? Yeah, it is. Okay. Sorry. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna mute this. I use the handheld. Uh, being a sound man is a is a hard job. It's there's. It's not Peter's fault. He's still relatively new, so thank you for your service. It's, uh, it's. I know it's not easy, so uh, don't, don't, don't feel bad. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna uh, get into our message. My name's Caleb Mayberry. I'm one of the, one of the pastors here. And so welcome if you're, if you're new. Uh, we have been going through First Corinthians. It's been uh, a very fun book to go through. It's uh, a church that has had a lot of issues, and uh, there's, a, there's been a lot of controversy that's come up uh, in this book. Fortunately, this is uh, not one of the more controversial, uh, controversial passages, but uh, it is a good one. I hope it's helpful for us this morning. Father, uh, as we uh, come to your word, I pray that you would prepare, prepare our hearts to, to hear, uh, to, to understand, uh, to grasp the truth, Lord, that, that you would communicate uh, to us, and that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate um, your word for us in such a way that it becomes real, in such a way that it applies uh, to uh, our lives and the day-to-day uh, decisions that we make. And so, Lord, would you be with us and help us in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. If you're not there, First Corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 through 34. Carpe diem, seize the day. Memento mori, remember that you have to die. YOLO, you only live once. Each of these statements has been used in various generations to try to answer the question of how should we live in light of death? How should we live in light of death? We know that we're all going to die. We know that we only have one life to live, and, and we know that tomorrow's not guaranteed. And so in light of that, how should we live today knowing that there is a day coming where we do die? The late Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, said this about death in a commencement speech. He said, remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. Follow your heart. Is that it? Is that the key to purpose and meaning? How do I know where following my heart is going to take me. Is it going to take me someplace good? And if we're going to be dead anyway, is there really any significance in where our hearts take us? Here in this passage, the church in Corinth is dealing with the question of how they should live in light of death. And it specifically is talking about the church in Corinth. 
So this, this is in the context of those who believe in Jesus. How should those who believe in Jesus, who claim to follow him, who claim to belong in him, what do they, how do they live in light of death? That's the question I want to address. How do they answer it? How do we answer that question? And does the Bible give us any clues? Does it give us any instruction on how we are to answer that question? And I would submit to you that the key to how you answer that question has to do with what you believe about death itself. What you believe about death itself. It's not enough to know that you're going to die. But you need to understand what is death. What happens when you die. Before I get to that key question, I want to address two other questions. Because this is the context is again, people who believe in Jesus. So I want to ask two questions about faith. The first question is, how? what makes faith worthless? What makes faith worthless? The second question is, what makes faith of infinite value? And then the third question is, how should we, as believers, live in light of death? That's the third question. Three points. First point, or first question, what makes faith worthless? Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? A big question to answer is, what do they mean by that? So they, they, they believe that the Corinthians are starting to articulate a teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. And the question is, what do they mean by there's no resurrection of the dead? The commentators that I've read argue that just about everyone in ancient times would have believed in some sort of afterlife. But it would have been more spiritual in nature. So no one, almost no one believed that you just die and that's it. That, that you don't exist. That you just cease to exist. And so when they say that there's no resurrection from the dead, what's at issue is a bodily resurrection. What they're saying is, there's no bodily resurrection. And they're teaching this, and Paul is adamantly opposed to this teaching. And from a certain perspective, it's a valid conclusion to come to. By a show of hands, uh, how many have seen a dead body at some point in their life? So keep your hands raised. Okay. Now, by a show of hands, how many people have seen a dead body get up out of a casket? I wrote in parenthesis, the correct answer is no one. If you've never seen a body raised from the dead, then you might come to the conclusion, imagine that, that bodies don't raise. It's not far-fetched. If I told you that one day pigs will fly, would you believe me? 
why wouldn't you believe me? But because based on what you know about pigs, pigs do not have the ability or capability to fly, and it doesn't seem like that'll happen anytime soon. Likewise, based on what we know about dead bodies, it's not possible for dead bodies to come back to life. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about someone who's been dead, you know, like someone whose heart stopped for a few minutes. I'm not talking about someone who appeared dead, but they really weren't dead. I'm talking about someone who's dead, dead. Someone who has been dead for days, if it were not for, for uh, preservative chemicals, would be stinking. I'm talking about stone cold, rigor mortis, dead, dead. We don't see people in that state get up out of the grave. What we believe is pretty incredible. And, and I want to emphasize this point because I think it's important for us to see things from an unbeliever's perspective. To believe in a resurrection of dead bodies is a pretty incredible statement. It's a pretty incredible belief. In our culture, one of the things that we like to do is we like to see rare events. You might go to a place just for the chance to see something rare and unique. It might be a, a particular kind of whale or a particular fish that you want to catch. It might be uh, a piece of antique furniture that you find at a thrift store shop or at a garage sale. People will go whale watching or thrift store shopping, spending money and time just for the chance, just for the chance to see something that they really wanted to see, to find something that they really wanted to find. But people will only spend time or money if they know that it is possible. It must be possible. There must be some chance. It's kind of like how a casino works. You go to a casino, and they've, they've designed their games to let you win at just the right frequency and just the right amount to get you to believe that the next big payday is just around the corner. Right? Poor game design would say, would have you go to a casino and have you never win anything. Like, if you went to a casino and you never got something that flashed and blinged, you probably wouldn't go again. But they design it so that you win just a little bit after, and you don't keep track of it, right? You come in with 100 bucks and you start spending 20 or 30 bucks, but then you win like five bucks here and there, or however it works. I don't go to casinos that much, but I know a little bit. And I know that that's the key to good design, is to make you feel like there's a chance. And if there's a chance, you go, and you hope, and you'll spend time and money just for that chance. It's based on experiential reality of what you've seen as possible. Now, here's my point. What if I asked you, how many of you want to go with me to go resurrection body watching? Not whale watching, not thrift store shopping, resurrection body watching. I'm, I'm, we're going to go to the graveyard, okay? And we're going to scope it out, 
and we're going to look for the place where we think it's the highest probability that a dead body is going to rise up out of the grave. People will go whale watching and spend hours out on the ocean or out in the sea just for the chance to see something spectacular. Just for the chance, if they're fishing, to catch something amazing. But I bet you that none of you would spend five minutes with me going to the graveyard to hope to see a body raised from the grave. Why? Because not only is it a small probability of that happening, we actually, that's a zero percent probability of that happening. People just don't rise from the dead out of their graves. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that people would struggle with believing something that we don't ever see. Even the Corinthians, who are much closer chronologically to the resurrection of Jesus, are beginning to struggle with this idea of people bodily raising from the dead. What Paul is doing, starting in verse 12, is he's contrasting their Christian beliefs with that of this particular teaching that there is no bodily resurrection, and he's saying that these beliefs are incompatible. This teaching didn't come from Paul. It didn't come from Jesus. Nevertheless, it came up, and part of the reason, I think, is just the the sheer unbelievability that bodies can raise that are dead. Now, I think there's another reason that they're teaching this, and I'll get into that a little bit later. What Paul does is he places next to each other the, the proclamation of the bodily resurrection of Jesus on the one hand with this new teaching that there is no bodily resurrection and basically says they're incompatible. They, they do not jive with each other. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus himself is not raised. And therefore, your proclamation is in vain, and your faith is worthless. And in the context, vain means for nothing. It's it's worthless. I'm, I'm preaching a message that's worthless, and so I'm doing it for nothing. There's no purpose to it if the message I'm preaching has no worth. That's his point. If if the dead are not raised and Jesus is not raised, and and that is the crux of the message that we proclaim. It it hinges on the resurrection of, of Jesus. Now, Paul, I believe, is really, really worked up about this teaching. Why do I say that? Because he, he starts to repeat himself. I don't know if you've ever been so worked up or so angry that you start to repeat the same things you've been saying. And I think this is what Paul, though, inspired by the Spirit in his humanity, he's worked up. Let me read verses 13 through 17. Paul writes, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. He, he cycles through the same logic twice. There is no bodily resurrection. If Jesus has not been raised, if Jesus has not been raised, your faith is worthless. He, he says that twice. But at the end, he introduces one statement that's different. It's this. In verse 17, he says, You are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. Now, there's an awful lot built into this statement. You are still in your sins. Number one, it assumes that you've sinned. The Corinthians are sinners. You and I are sinners. To sin, simply put, means we've missed the mark that God of what God has designed for us. We've fallen short of God's standard of righteousness. Romans 3.23 We are more about ourselves than we are about God and other people, naturally. We're plagued with this disease, if you will, of, of selfishness. And it's from birth. It's not a learned trait. Right? You don't teach toddlers how to be selfish. They don't hoard toys as a learned behavior. It's, it's innate. You have to teach them not to hoard, hoard toys. And so it's this idea that, that from birth we are bent, we are inclined towards self and towards loving self over loving others. Jesus said that the greatest command was to love God and love others. And so we are bent to disobey that command. That's what sin is. So to say that you are still in your sins assumes that we're sinners. And secondly, it, it, it says that we remain in our sins. We remain in our sins. What Paul is not talking about is our propensity to continue sinning. Even after uh, Jesus has died, and if we believe in Jesus, Christians still have no problems sinning. But what he's saying is something remains. If Jesus has not raised from the dead, something remains, and what remains is death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. That, that when we sin in Adam, the first man, death came into being. Ironic statement. And because death, death came, we are destined to die in our sins. So if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then death remains, and, and Jesus didn't really save us from the ultimate enemy or the final enemy, which is death. So we are still in our sins as a way of saying that Jesus' resurrection, if it didn't happen, makes faith meaningless or worthless, that, that we proclaim this message that we say is a message of salvation, but if we're going to die anyways, and we stay dead, then it's not really a message of salvation. It makes no difference. And he says in verse 19 that we, if, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, 
we should be pitied more than anyone. And why does he say this? Because honestly, if, if, if what we believe makes no ultimate difference at the end, then I've got better things to do on Sunday than to proclaim a message that makes no difference. And you've got better things to do on a Sunday morning than to listen to a message that ultimately makes no difference. What he's saying is, I've been living a life of sacrifice. I've been living a life of suffering. I've been living a life of pain and inconvenience and discomfort. And if ultimately it makes no difference, then I'm doing this for nothing. Like, have pity on me. So our faith, if it's to be real, if it is to be worth suffering for, must make a difference. And the only way that it can make a difference is if Jesus has raised from the dead. But of course, Paul is so worked up because he believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. And this teaching that there is no bodily resurrection is directly incompatible. It contradicts it. And so he's, he's saying, no, it's, it's, it makes no logical sense for you to believe in Jesus, to believe in a Jesus that's still dead. What makes faith of infinite worth? What makes faith worthless is if there is no bodily resurrection. What makes faith of infinite worth? Verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But as it is, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And despite how incredible a bodily resurrection may seem to us, the Bible and Paul are unequivocally, unequivocally clear that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead and he stayed raised. This is what Paul just argued in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15, which, which uh, Pastor Bob covered last Sunday. Jesus really did die. He was executed by professionals. He was buried in a tomb with a large stone sealing it. Some, some people estimate that the stone weighed anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. The tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers precisely because it was discussed beforehand that there might be people who would want to steal the body of Jesus perpetuate a story that he actually rose from the dead. So they saw that potential uh, potentiality and they mitigated against it. They said, okay, we'll put some Roman soldiers in front. There's a big stone in front. Like there's no way. And they put it, they saw them put his body in. Like there's no way this guy's going to get out. Number one, he's dead. Number two, anyone who's trying to steal him is going to have to get through the, get through the toughest soldiers around in their day. On the third day, just as Jesus himself predicted, the tomb could hold him no longer. Guards were not enough to keep him dead. 
the stone was not enough to keep him dead. Asphyxiation was not enough to keep Jesus dead. A spear ripped through his ribs, piercing his lungs and his heart was not enough to keep Jesus dead. On the third day, the stone was rolled away and Jesus rose. And people saw him afterwards. The the beauty of this is this is written as a historical event. It is attested to with as much evidence as you would ask of any historical event. Eyewitnesses. And there was so much opposition to this story that if they wanted to disprove it, all they had to do was produce the body. And they did not do it because there was no body to be found, because Jesus really did raise. He's risen. It is, it's, an inc- it's an incredible story. It, Remember when Jesus, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. That was amazing. He was dead for several days. He was, they said, don't go in there. <laughs> he stinketh. King James Word. Jesus went in. says, come forth. And people were amazed. And they were praising God. And it, can you imagine if you're sitting there, you're, you're having a funeral, and all of a sudden you're having a party because something unimaginable happened. And they couldn't contain their excitement. I mean, think about it. And today, people would be tweeting about it. People would be taking selfies with Lazarus on Instagram. I mean, this is news that goes forth. And that's what was happening. Their version of Instagram, their version of Twittering, they were getting it out. Lazarus was going to other places, and the Pharisees were like, oh my goodness, we have to stop this. And their plan was to kill Lazarus, right? Because he was the living evidence that the power of God was in their midst. And this was the same thing that happened only to a greater extent when Jesus rose from the dead. People saw him, and they could not contain their excitement. They told others. And the cat was out of the bag. They couldn't disprove it because it was true. And God made sure that that message would go out. This is the foundation of our faith, what makes our faith of infinite worth. Now I want to talk about this idea of first fruits because it's really important. First fruits, verse 23. I'll read 21 and then finish on 23. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Uh, Firstfruits. Now, have you ever been to a restaurant and considered buying a bottle of wine for the table. Now, now I haven't done this. It's, it's expensive. And, but, but I have been at a table where someone was buying a bottle of wine for the table. And, and what they often do is the server will, will bring a glass of the wine, of the bottle that you're interested in, and they'll have whoever is 
purchasing the, the wine, tasted. And why do they do that? They do that because the glass of wine is supposed to be an indication or representative of what the entire bottle will taste like. And so if the glass of wine is good, then the bottle's good. If the glass of wine is nasty, then the bottle of wine's going to be nasty. It's this idea of, of first fruits. It's, it's similar to it. In an agricultural setting, first fruits is literally the first produce of a particular crop of the season. And it is it was often seen as representative of the rest of the crop. So if the first fruits of the crop was good, it looked like it was going to be a good crop for the rest of the crop. And so what Paul is saying in, in calling Jesus the first fruits of those who believe in Christ, of those who belong to Christ, that that what we know about Christ is true of us. So if Jesus stays dead, then we stay dead. But if Jesus is risen, if Jesus is victorious, if Jesus is triumphant, then he is the first fruits. He is the indicator. He is the representation of what our destiny is. And so it's a powerful image, especially for people in this culture who would have understood first fruits right off the bat. Like we're not, most of us, in an agrarian society anymore. But it's a powerful example that we can be sure of our destiny based on looking at Jesus and what his reality is. If he's risen, our destiny is to be risen. If he is risen triumphantly, as the scriptures say, then we are risen triumphantly, not to merely continue to exist, but Paul elsewhere says that we will reign with Jesus. And so this is a triumphant existence. This is a victorious existence. This is a, an existence that is something we should desire to attain to. Jesus is the first fruits of those who belong to Jesus. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. It's because it speaks to our destiny. Because he has risen from the dead, our ultimate destiny is no longer death, but it's life. Earlier I had suggested that the question we need to answer is, how should we as believers live in light of death? However, I think you'll see that the truth of resurrection reframes that question for those who believe. And that question is reframed as, how should we as believers live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? Because that's true. It's not just death. It doesn't stop at death. But, but for those who believe, we get what Jesus has done. And so how do we live in light of what Jesus has done? Namely, how do we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? And that's my last question this morning. And before I speak about how uh, we ought to live in light of the resurrection, I'd like, to, I'd like to talk about how we should live if the resurrection of Jesus is not true. How should we live if the resurrection of Jesus is not true? Verse 32, the second part of verse 32. Paul writes, 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's actually he's quoting Isaiah. In other words, why are we wasting our time denying ourselves pleasure and comfort and putting ourselves in danger if at the end of the day we die anyways and our bodies stay in the grave? Why not at least enjoy yourself while you are living? This is a very common sentiment. This is what's behind carpe diem, memento mori, and YOLO. We may not use these terms, but the sentiment is alive and well. You only have one life to live. Everyone is born, and everyone dies. Batter up, batter down. That's it. And if that's it, why not swing for the fences? Why not live it up? John Roger Stevens, a famous singer-songwriter of our day, also known as John Legend, co-wrote a song appropriately titled, Live It Up. And one of the verses reads like this. He writes, No more putting it in the layaway, because boo, I got the money today. Come on and go to the mall, let's play. Let's go raise a toast to the days ahead. You can't take it with you when you're dead. You might as well enjoy it now instead. I would sing it, but... This is modern Epicureanism. The sophisticated pursuit of pleasure in the absence of pain. I say sophisticated pursuit because most people would acknowledge that unbridled hedonism is destructive. Like, we get that rock stars die early in, in, in large part, or in some part, because of overindulgence. Like, we see that. That's actually statistics. Rock stars do die early. And so we, we, we recognize that. We go, okay, we, we don't want to overindulge like rock stars, but we can appreciate the finer things in life. A prime filet mignon, a vintage Merlot, a brand new car, fine jewelry, trips to the exotic outer reaches of this planet. The good life. That's what people are after, the good life. We want to live comfortably. We want to live pleasurably. We want, you know, in, in, in a way that's not self-destructive. And it's not that eating and drinking and other sensual pleasures are wrong. In fact, um, if you believe that this life is all there is for the body, then that's probably the best we can do. That's what Paul is saying. I'm totally living the wrong life if Jesus stayed dead. Like, I could be doing better things. And he's referencing um, the danger that he's in daily. He says, probably mystically, not mystically, he says, um, sort of representatively, that he was fighting wild beasts. Probably not actually fighting wild beasts. It could be used as a metaphor for people. But... Still, he's doing things that are causing him discomfort and danger every day. And he's like, you know, if, 
if Jesus is not raised, I could be doing better things. I would rather be living the good life, eating, drinking, because tomorrow we die. One of the tried and true marketing techniques is to paint a picture of the good life as living it up and then attach that picture to their product or service. Um, have you ever been deep in the weeds of YouTube? Um, you're trying to watch another video of cats and cucumbers, and it's, it's, that's really a thing, by the way. You go, it's pretty funny. Cats are uh, abnormally scared of cucumbers. And so, as I'm in my binge session of cat and cucumbers, in the midst of it, I see this video, and, and you've probably seen these videos. It starts off, there's a young man, and he gets out of a really nice car, maybe a Bentley or a Rolls Royce, and he's walking into his mansion, and maybe there's some beautiful girls in the background. He's like, you know, my life used to suck, and now it doesn't. And if, uh, all because I learned a few simple principles that I'm about to show you for free. And there's, how many of you have seen, like, videos like that on YouTube? Uh, okay, so some hands, right? And... <laughs> there's numerous of these videos. They're, they're not all the same person, but they all follow sort of the same formula. And the idea, and, and they follow the same formula because it works. They paint a picture of what the good life looks like, what people are naturally attracted to. Hey, I like nice cars. I like nice houses. I like beautiful people in the background and swimming pools. And if I can learn a few principles to get me there, hey, maybe I'll listen. And so that's kind of this idea of the good life in our culture. This idea of eating and drinking and just living it up in the day. Because tomorrow we die. And if tomorrow we die and that's all there is, why not do that? Why not pursue that? If all we have is this life and this life only, if this body is all we have and then it turns to dust and it stays there, then maximizing material and sensual pleasures, pleasures make sense. And even if we know it's temporary, when faced with the choice of pleasure versus pain, discomfort or uh, comfort versus discomfort, abundance versus lack, we will always choose the former unless there's a greater reward on the other side of discomfort, pain, and lack. But even if we believe that there's a greater reward on the other side of pain, on the other side of discomfort, it's still difficult to sacrifice in the short term. Has anyone ever tried dieting before? Like, we know that if we diet, if we eat right, and in moderation, and we exercise, we know that there is benefit on the other side of that. It's, it's not that we doubt that, right? We've seen people who, who exercise and eat right, and we see that they're fit. We, we see that that is the equation, and yet, for some reason, we don't always do it, or we struggle. Why? Because in the discipline, there's pain. In the discipline, there's discomfort. I hate doing abs at the gym. I know that ab work will make my core strong and it probably would help with balance and maybe I could play basketball again. But it hurts. <laughs> it's painful. I don't, I don't do it. 
even though I know the equation. This puts us in a dilemma. Because we do that which we know we ought not to, and we don't do that which we know we ought to do. And so either we feel guilty all the time, or we change our beliefs. And, and you'll hear people say things like, well, we all got to die of something. And people say that to justify the unhealthy practice that they want to continue doing. That's why you say something like that. Because you don't want to feel guilty all the time. Like our, mi our minds don't like that feeling, and so we'll change our beliefs if we have to to make us feel good about the unhealthy thing that we're engaged in. This is actually what the Corinthians are doing. This is the second reason why they're, they're perpetuating this teaching. Not only is it hard to believe that bodies raised from the dead, it is um, inconvenient to believe that bodies raised from the dead. In the same way that good health is inconvenient to someone bent on eating junk food 24-7, the resurrection of the dead is inconvenient to someone bent on indulging in sensual pleasure. If what I do with my body matters for eternity, then I have to care not to do that which would jeopardize the health of my body. But if I can convince myself that my body doesn't matter, then what I do with my body also doesn't matter. And therefore, I'm free to indulge in sensual pleasures. And so it's an irony that as I de-emphasize the importance of the body, I overemphasize indulgence in bodily pleasures. I think this is exactly what's going on. There is a bit of a Gnostic belief that's going on. And basically, it was a de-emphasis in bodily things to the extent that it didn't really matter what you do with your body. And so what we see is, throughout Corinthians, is Paul is, is correcting amongst a, a divided nature of the church, but he's also correct, correcting rampant sexual immorality. He's correcting substance abuse. Primarily we see that where they're, they're, they're so addicted to, to alcohol that they're getting drunk at the communion table. Remember that in, in chapter 11? And in that same picture, basically, they were, the way that they practiced communion was they brought their own food to communion. So, you know, we have bread here, and everyone partakes. But what they were doing is like, they were bringing, like, a sack lunch. And those, those who had money were bringing in lots of good food, lots of good wine. But those who didn't have anything came empty-handed. And so they were eating and indulging in their own food, while those who didn't have anything were left starving. And then some people were getting drunk, and Paul's like, wait a minute, you have totally missed the point of communion. Like, communion, togetherness. And you're just treating this as a place to, to get drunk and get fat. So they were indulging in sensual pleasures, and, and, and part of the root, of, I believe, is, is this teaching that says, no, there's no bodily resurrection. Yeah, we believe in Jesus, 
but our bodies just stay dead. And because of that, you can start to engage in these practices guilt-free. That's what Paul is addressing. And he says this, like his conclusion, his exhortation is to stop sinning. Verse 34, he says, come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. In other words, stop lying to yourself about sin. What you do with your body does matter. Because Jesus died for your body. Like he died for our entire beings. Not just for our souls, for our bodies too. And we know that because Jesus rose from the dead bodily. He showed his wrist off to Thomas. Like look, feel, see, touch. That's a bodily resurrection. Jesus cares about our bodies because he himself rose bodily. God cares about our sexual sin. God cares about substance abuse. God cares about greediness. God cares about everything we do with our bodies. It matters. But how how do we stop sinning? How do we stop sinning? Stop it? Grit your teeth? Stop. Paul says right before stop sinning, he says, come to your senses. Come to your senses. What you do has to do with what you believe. What you practice has to do with what starts in your mind as to what you believe about what's true. Come to your senses is his exhortation. And so Paul is uh, redirecting us back to the fundamentals of the good news that we've received. And and Pastor Bob read this last week. I want to read it again because this is ultimately the foundation of which he says. So when he says stop saying, stop sinning, he's not saying stop sinning in a vacuum. And he's not saying come to your senses in the vacuum. He's saying come to your senses and believe what I've told you. Believe what I've already communicated you, to you. Believe this good news. And this good news is this in verse 3 of chapter 15. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. This core news, Jesus died for our sins, which means he paid for our sins. He takes the place and the penalty for our sins of death. Death is placed on his shoulders, that he rose in accordance with the scriptures, that we not only have have our hope that our sins are forgiven, that we have hope that death is conquered, that we have life with Christ. You cannot separate those two. Those two are inseparable. Jesus' death without the resurrection is meaningless. 
And obviously the resurrection doesn't make sense unless he died. But together, they are the good news. And they're the hope on which we base our faith. So when we hear stop sinning, what we should hear is remember the gospel. Our sins are forgiven once and for all by Jesus. That means future sins. That means future struggles. And the best part of the good news is that God gives us, he says in in Matthew 28, that I will be with you until the end of the age. And so he doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't sort of give us the instructions and say, go follow it the best you can. But he says, I'm here with you to die for you and to rise for you. And he says, look, I'm going back to my father, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And so I'm still going to be with you. So as we engage in life, we get to do things now that wouldn't make sense without the resurrection of Jesus. We get to make decisions that wouldn't make sense without the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe it's choosing to to not take the promotion because you know the time constraint it will place on your family. Maybe it's choosing not to purchase the brand new car because the money that you would save could bless someone else in need. Maybe it's choosing time, uh, choosing to make time for prayer and Bible study when you have too many things on your plate because you believe that God will make time in the midst of where you don't see it. Maybe it's choosing to endure ridicule for expressing beliefs that are contrary to the culture. Maybe it's choosing uh, to live in the neighborhood where the schools aren't the best or it's a little less safe because you believe that God, through you and your family, might help to make the neighborhood safer and improve the schools. Maybe it's choosing to risk friendships for the sake of telling them the only good news that you know that would give them everlasting hope. Understanding the gospel, understanding that Jesus rose from the dead, empowers us, frees us to make decisions that wouldn't otherwise make sense. It comes to what we believe. If we really believe that, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to do. I, I, I'm, I'm someone who is, who is a very curious person. I don't mean strange. Maybe strange too. But I'm intensely curious about the world. Like, the world is a big place. And there's lots of places to see. There's lots of things to do. There's, there's lots of interests that I would have. And I, I could imagine a life just spent chasing interest after interest after interest. Like, I love music. I would love to just, like, learn how to play the guitar, or learn how to play the piano, or just do that for, for hours on end. And, and some people spend their lives doing that. But, but in Christ, I know that my end is not the grave. Actually know that I'm going to have eternity to practice some of these things that I find interesting. And that in the interim, I know that God has, has empowered us, has equipped us for a mission. That there, the, the thing we have to realize is that there really is something at stake. There's life and there's death, and some people are headed on the path of destruction. And that's the message of Jesus, that Jesus has come to save sinners. God has come to save people from destruction, from his wrath. 
And so we have a mission while we're here on this earth to proclaim this good news to others so that others may have the same saving grace that we've experienced. Which means that there is sacrifice. Which means that there are things that I get to lay down for the sake of that mission, but it's, it's a temporary sacrifice. It's not a permanent sacrifice. It's not like we're saying, oh, I'll never get to do that. We're saying, I'm laying that down now for the sake of what God is doing in and through me to, to grow and build his kingdom. And then on the other side of that kingdom is eternity. I can wait to learn guitar if I have to. And so this belief, if we really believe it changes our perspective, it changes very practically how we make decisions. And so I gave some of those examples. I, I don't know. It, it could, there are probably thousands of decisions just in this group that we have here this morning that are going to be made over the following years. And, and this message has very real implications for the outcome of those decisions. That if the, to the extent that we diminish or uh, de-emphasize the resurrection of Christ, is to the extent that our decisions will tend to be more inward and selfishly motivated and focused. But to the extent that we magnify and we understand the resurrection of Jesus, that we understand that we have a destiny that goes into eternity, then our decisions will be more, will tend towards those things that are God-honoring and, and for the love of others. Why? Because we can sacrifice because we were given everything in Jesus. We're not in poverty spiritually. We have everything we need in Jesus, and we can give out of that abundance, out of that richness. Jesus is with us in his spirit to the end of the age. And, and what will happen, you know, we believe this message, but then when it comes down to it, it's still hard. And that's where we need to depend on the Spirit to give us strength. It's, 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 it's not just a matter of intellectually knowing the right equation, but we actually need the real help. And so I would encourage you that as you face these decisions, as moment by moment, day by day, as you think through how does the resurrection of Jesus impact how I live life in the day to day not only think of the equation but think of, but ask God to help you with his spirit to, to open your eyes to see things as he sees and I believe that God actually helps that sometimes we don't see it and then God gives sight and then we see it and we're like oh that makes sense and so I pray for that this morning that that we would not only understand the good news intellectually, but that we would go to this God who's given us the good news for his help personally and corporately day by day as we walk in this faith. Let us pray for the Lord's help. Father, I, I thank you uh, so much that You chose to pursue us, that you saw our needs, you saw our 
helplessness and you pursued us to the point of sending your son your very likeness to come and live amongst us to walk with us to teach us to show us and to die for us thank God that you also rose and so I ask that you would help us to set before our eyes daily a vision of, of, of your resurrection and that we uh, who place our faith in you would have the confidence to and the expectation Lord, that we also will rise and I pray Father especially Lord, for those who have uh, upcoming uh, big decisions to make, Lord, that you would be in the midst of those decisions, and, and Lord, that you would help us to make sacrifices that don't make sense apart from you. Lord, would you bless, would you bless those who walk in would you give us confidence in walking in obedience to trust, Lord, that the reward is great and that what we sacrifice, what we lose in the short run is incomparable to your infinite worth. Father, I thank you for this morning and pray that you would help us, help us to come to you love you, to cherish you, to know you, to grow in the knowledge of who you are, to grow in our ability to love others. Father, I thank you and I praise you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we also...